Welcome to The Game Doctor, where I, Dr. Phil, diagnose games on how fun they are, offer evidence-based strategy advice, and give a second opinion on what could make games even better. And of course, this is the home of the Rosen blog. Now let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, this is Phil, and uh, happy to be here and do this episode for you. So uh, it's been a little bit difficult in my life to right now to be able to sit down and podcast regularly, but being able to carve out this time was especially exciting for me because I get to talk about Etowah. And this is a, a long time coming since uh, I found out about the game last October or so with Essen, and uh, have seen a lot of reviews from other people online and finally had a chance to try this out on my own, and I'm happy to share my thoughts and experiences with you so far. Just so you know, I do own a physical copy and seen the components in person. Uh, I've also played this online on Tabletop Simulator, and I've played this game exclusively solo. Uh, I haven't had the chance to uh, play this game with anyone else yet, but hopefully in the future I, I will. I do have some thoughts based on the experiences of others watching them play online to give my thoughts and two cents on the multiplayer experience. But as a caveat, you know, this is, I, I don't have any personal, you know, primary experiences with that yet. However, um, I, I think I have played this enough to feel comfortable sharing my thoughts on this game. So Ediwa is a Uwe Rosenberg game, obviously from, from Essen last year. That is a medium weight Euro game, uh, if I were to summarize that. Um, the theme and the setting of this game basically is as follows. You are the uh, village leader uh, of a... Uh, uh, you're a leader of a village in the Chibi region of Africa, uh, or the near Chibi, the city of Chibi, near uh, in the Edoe region, where you notice that bats... Uh, these fruit bats, as they come and partake of the fruit uh, of the trees and, you know, excrete uh, the seeds through guano, uh, they tend to have a positive influence in reforestation, basically. And all of this in the setting of increased p pollution and, you know, population growth and mechanization, industrialization. And, and so this game's theme, and I think the message that is being sent through this game, and we'll talk about this later, is promoting the balance between man-made uh, progress as well as preserving nature uh, through, uh, you know, a medium uh, Euro strategic experience. And so I think that is really neat, first of all. So mechanically, uh, so talking about the game mechanisms, right, it includes worker placement as does a lot of Uwe Rosenberg games thus far, and it probably follows the model that is set forth most in Newsford, first of all. You start off with three workers. Everyone around the table has these three workers to play each round, and there are seven rounds total, equaling 21 turns to take. And uh, in addition to this, too, you know, you have a bat action, I'll, I'll just call it a, a free action that you use your bats to move over to a, a certain tile that you have in your tableau to basically, in, in summary, uh, trade in a fruit for another tree. So you're adding more uh, trees to your board. So you're 
using your workers to take actions which basically give you resources. And the goal of that is to turn those resources into more uh, tile cards, which will score you victory points at the end of the game. And these tile cards include places for your village families to live, such as villages, as well as settlements and farmsteads, etc. Uh, each with increasing amount of points and requirements in resources to pay for. But you also acquire uh, terrain cards to lay down in your tableau. A lot of these terrain cards are worth maybe a point, sometimes negative points as well, uh, and they offer uh, a variety of different places to put your resources down. Uh, one thing that makes this game unique among other Rosenberg games, in my opinion, is that you, instead of drawing uh, most of the resources from a general supply, this applies to bats and gold. The other resources that you entertain during this game, which include wild animals, goats, trees, and fruit, they come from a set um, personal board where you remove them from that personal board from left to right, play them on an appropriate space on your tableau, and in between each round, when you have an income phase or a maintenance phase, you can use the, the further along and the more of those resources you've taken off, the more of a particular uh, kind of resource uh, is gained, basically. Uh, to, for example, if you have so many wild animals off of your you know resource board and onto your tableau, you can, in the income phase, gain trees to be able to pluck those off of the board and place them onto your tableau. And you do it in an incremental order. So you do the wild animals first, which allow you to take trees off. And then you do the tree income, which allows you to take more fruit off as trees bear fruit. And then if, as you take the fruit off, then you get to play bats, basically. And so it follows a very natural and thematic progression. And that's going to be the, you know, quote unquote theme of this podcast is how thematic this game is, even though it is a strategic Euro game by heart. The diversity of the worker placement spots reminds me a lot of uh, A Feast for Odin. I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of these spots kind of do the same thing. They just straight up give you resources, and there are a lot of spaces in A Feast for Odin that do so. Uh, rather than, you know, have you do some sort of special action or roll a dice or something like that. And so it, it, it is very straightforward. And maybe it's a lot like New Spirit as well in that matter. Those those spots that you take are pretty straightforward. Um, so in that regard, it's not too difficult, in my opinion, to learn this game, even though it is a, you know, strategic Euro game, because the action spots are pretty straightforward. Uh, basically resource collection. There are a few spots that do require uh, some remembrance of, of how they work. In particular, at the very right portion of the board, you get to you know, gain gold or you know, flip over family tiles uh, based on how many um, you know, terrain cards that you have with these little nature icons on them. And you get to also gain gold or, you know, et cetera, based on of that number. And so that is a particularly unique action in this game. And there's also another action, um, which is a part of this sliding board, which is something I think we should talk about next. So after, uh, so 
there's a main you know portion of the worker placement board that you take actions on, but there's also a sliding um, uh, cardboard on cardboard basically, which mix and match uh, seven of these uh, worker placement spots that you get to take. So with the uh, first round, there is no uh, cardboard space on it to mix it up. There's a printed uh, way to take an action, right? Uh, but then the second round, over the second column, you get to move that over, and there is a different um, worker placement spot on it, which enables it to mix and match with the configuration of the first round, and etc. And this is all randomized at the beginning of the game, and you can see it and plan ahead accordingly based on the combinations of actions that you can take and how they will progress uh, throughout the game as they cover different spots and move. So that is unique, I think, uh, to this Uwe Rosenberg game. And, uh, and and as far as points are concerned, too, some early thoughts on strategy. If you want to gain you know, the most amount of points, a lot of that comes in the form of families. And so um, another cool thing about the personal resource board that you're taking families and bat, or not bats, but uh, fruit and trees, etc. on, not only does the number uh, corresponding to the space as you progress from left to right uh, corresponds to how much you get in income, but it also can tell you how much uh, you will gain points of for at the end of the game. With the exception of families, uh, because the families, um, the number underneath the family uh, also tells you the uh, uh, amount of food that it requires to feed them. As this is a Rosenberg game, uh, the mechanism of feeding your people is back, which, which in my opinion, adds the delicious, you know, uh, tension and multitasking that is required to play this game at a, you know, a higher level. To be able to balance that and also gain enough points to be successful in this game is something that is uh, unique to, I feel, Rosenberg games, or at least something that really stands out in his games, particularly Agricola, and is one of the myriad reasons why I love that game. So that is here as well, and that adds some, yeah, some delicious tension to keep you on your toes as you try to navigate this game. So, so your focus is mostly on getting enough family members onto the board, with the caveat that you need to feed them as you gain more of them. And there are many different ways where you can feed them, and so it's up to you to kind of uh, bolster enough resources in di different ways to be able to maintain that status quo of meeting your family's needs and the village's needs. And as it continues to grow, of course, you gain more points as you do so. The bats, uh, in addition to the special free action that you can take, um, only score you points after ten, after you acquire ten bats. So every the eleventh and twelfth are each worth one point respectively, as you continue on. And so um, there's not a lot of focus there, but there are some interesting ways to make this game feel different, and we'll talk about that soon as well with the solo challenges. And that's been very interesting. So anyway, you're, you're fo primarily focused on getting, um, and the other way to gain you know, major points is to get settlements which I believe are worth nine points each. And so you're trying to get settlements and get families there, balancing the amount of, um, 
you know, food and, and meeting the requirements of food that you need to feed them every round, but also trying to score in different ways based on the spaces that you have on your board, as well as um, what resources you pick off of your personal board to place on it, which I think will make every game feel a little bit different. So thematically, I love everything that this game is is going for. So as you are trying to utilize these bats to be able to grow your your fruit or your trees, right, and to reforest and renature the area that your you know the setting is taking place in. The the bat action that you take is one example of how the theme I believe is more of the inspiration behind the mechanics rather than it being vice versa, right, or having no thematic tie-in whatsoever. The way that you score points in this game as well reflects what would, you know, happen in real life. How do you measure the success of a village is by how many people are living there, uh, as well as what, you know, what, what does the nature look like, right? If, if you do place a lot of emphasis on the people, but also the nature, you know, the, the how many fruit and, and animals that you have and et cetera, then, you know, I, I, I think that's a really good way to abstract what you would try to find in the real life and how you would judge the success of a individual village based off of that. The There's also a small little mechanism during the income maintenance phase where untrained families, so okay, I briefly mentioned it before, but when you take your family members off of your personal board, they're on one side, they cannot hold mats because they're not trained or educated to be able to, to take care of them. If you flip those over, then you will see the bat icon on there. That means you can hold a bat uh, when you take them from the general supply. Uh, when you do so, you know, trained families or educated families about bats, they straight up earn you one gold at the income phase. However, the untrained and uneducated families will force you to draw pollution from a bag. Um, you place the pollution onto your tableau. It, it blocks off a space on on your tableau and the way that all of these these tiles are configured is that the and the way that you place pollution on them is that you start at the top row going left to right most of these spaces are basically blank spaces which are wild spaces where you can place tokens on those you know on those spaces that you already have had a token on your terrain before and in my plays those have become very handy especially if you don't have the terrains at the you know at the top of the board to draw from that can include certain types of resources that you want trees or wild animals etc and so those blank spots spots are coveted and are very useful and flexible however if you do have a lot of untrained families you will be forced to place a pollution on that space and block it off for the remainder of the game and so hence you know decreasing the flexibility that you have uh, to um, to continue to gather resources and diversify. And I, I feel that is, you know, another thematic tie into this game where it's it, the message being sent in this game is that the untrained families are, you know, not aware of the utility of the fruit bat or are not perhaps in connection with, with the movement to preserve and reforest nature. And therefore the progress of humanity is causing this pollution to come down and, and ruin the territory from being inhabited by nature. 
Um, you do sometimes gain some gold by doing so. It is, and as you draw from a bag, it is a random, uh, you know, event. And so sometimes you don't get gain any gold. Sometimes you gain two. And so I, I think that also reflects what you might, you know, think about with uh, like the gold rush, you know, for example, or, you know, people going out, you hear the stories from, you know, the 1800s about folks going out to the river to, to panhandle for gold. Um, here in, in the United States, of course, that took place in California. And, you know, so a lot of people would go there and, and you know, try to strike it rich. And some people did, some people didn't. Um, at the behest of, of course, uh, industrializing the the natural setting for where the these gold mines and, and veins were found. And so, once again, you know, I think that does tie into not only just history, but what might be going on right now. Um, as is evident by the research that Uwe has done for this game. And so I, I like that, though the way that the income phase also progresses from, you know, wild animals to, to helping, you know, trees grow and, and, and blossom, which give rise to fruit, which give rise to bats. Uh, the, the income flow of those resources makes thematic sense as well. So the point I'm trying to make is that there are a lot of instances in this game where theme really does matter. It's not a dry euro where the theme is tacked on and feels like just a background. Uh, the, the, the mechanisms of this game is actually reflecting what and abstracting and summarizing what it might feel like in real life to um, see this, this um, historical or you know, real life event take place over time which I find really engaging and really refreshing as I continue to explore, you know, the Euro game scene and, and explore what I do like about, you know, some of these games. I love the puzzle and the mechanisms of these Euro games, but if there is some sort of thematic tie-in, I think that is just a, an excellent bonus that adds to the enjoyment that I have of the game in addition to solving the puzzle, but just being immersed in what the theme might be. And so that has a, you know, a good point going towards it for, for Edewa, something that I really like. The thing that made me a little trepidatious to play this game and, and, you know, I'm obviously biased because if you've listened to this channel before and have seen the catalog of episodes that I've put out, um, Uwe Rosenberg is my favorite designer and his games, you know, just sing right to me and, and, and they are just amazing. Um, I know there are people out there who feel similarly, uh, those you know, perhaps who are listening to this episode right now, but you know, in case that you ha you haven't noticed, I so I I am biased towards these games and will see these in the most positive light as possible. However, I do try to be as objective as possible as well with my experiences and not let the hype you know blind me too much. <laughs> and you know, maybe that's why you're listening to this too because you also want a a more positive look at this game because if you've kind of read through some of the reviews out there, everyone is kind of the same, the same thing where this game feels really fun. It's, you know, a, a fun medium weight Euro game to play, but there perhaps is not a, a lot of replayability that is offered in the game because Uwe is known for a lot of games and especially his heavier weight, you know, and rules com complex games where there's a lot of variety in based with cards that you play, um, buildings that you build, um, and, and, and things like that. And so, so that variety is something that initially drew me to playing his games and really loving Agricola and, 
um, appreciating Glass Road, etc., because there is so much variety which leads to replayability in this game. However, one of the games that really stood out to me and kind of gave me the same first impression as Edewa was Lahav. And I felt initially when I played Lahav is that, wow, you know, there are so many special buildings in this game, even in just the base game. But when I play it multiplayer or, you know, even solo, you're only seeing like a handful of those cards, like six at most or so. Uh, whereas everything else, all the other standard buildings that you're building and using are the same every game. And so at first, it's, it seemed like Lahav would be very um, rote and repetitive. And not in the good replayability sense, but it would feel the same every time. And that has since not been the case. I feel like it is a game that does feel different every time. And that the amount of special buildings sprinkle in just enough variety to make the flavor of every game feel different. I think that might be the case with Edewa. I'm not completely sure yet because I've had the chance to to play the solo and 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 that was my one concern was that there wasn't enough replayability because or variety uh, due to these terrain cards. They didn't offer enough of a different feel each game to make it uh, feel different if you do decide to go on the worker placement spot to acquire those. Would that change up your journey at all to getting, you know, your victory points, which is the same destination for everyone, which is basically to get as many families as possible. Um, Well, I suspect, you know, maybe some people have played this game and have won utilizing a different strategy and just focusing on a different resource or different an income of points. And so, um, who's to say, right. But so, to, so initially, you know, at face value, I was concerned with that. I will say this, and I think this kind of ties in another one of my main points about this game is that I really feel this game is made to be played solo. A lot of the feedback that I've heard and criticisms that I've heard about this game is that yes, it does feel repetitive and samey, when you're playing this game multiplayer because the terrain cards, you know, there's only so few terrain cards that are a part of the deck. I think there's about 30 or so, and there's not enough diversity amongst the, um, the, the tiles and the terrain cards for what you can place on them. Now, you know, with, with the caveat that there are a couple of tiles that are very unique and which is great, but there's not enough of that to make it feel different every time. Um, one reason that this is so is, you know, not only is the amount of cards or tiles available small, but you do shuffle through and see a lot of those. You see a high ratio during a multiplayer game. At the end of every, you know, maintenance phase, you swipe the board um, of those terrain cards that are left over and not taken and you replace them with new ones. And so I want to say you probably get through about half, maybe two thirds of the deck. So you're not seeing all of them and they're coming out in different orders, but, um, you know, due to the, you know, sheer amount of, of terrain cards or the sheer, you know, small amount, I should say of, of terrain cards, you might be able to see pretty much everything that the game and the terrain deck has to offer. And thus it makes it feel the same every time. And so the replayability would be very similar to, say, Agricola Family Edition, 
where, you know, there's so little variability that the game becomes closer and closer to being more of a chess-like game, more and more like Oret Labora. And many people love that game. That is one hurdle that I still have with that game, is being able to get past the chess-like nature of that game, the static setup of it, and not being able to have a little bit of variety with that. And so so that was my concern with Edewa as well. However, with the solo mode, you're not swiping the board every time. You're basically only um, filling up the tile uh, spot where you did acquire one in the previous round. And so you're seeing a, a, you know, a, a significantly less amount of those terrain cards during the seven round game. And that makes it feel different every time. You only have a, a certain... Um, you know, small amount of terrain cards to work with and to hopefully mesh with what you're trying to do in in your solo game. And so that makes the, the puzzle feel different every time. And so, um, yeah, so I, I really appreciated that in the solo game. And I have to talk about the solo challenge as well. So at the very back of the book, you know, they explain, you know, Uwe explains how the solo mode works. And just as a summary, it's very similar to uh, how Newsfeared and a feast for Odin work with worker placement where you take different colors of workers. In the first round, you play one color. It's red, right? You play all the red colors onto your board, your three workers. In the second round, you play your yellow workers. You don't remove the red ones. Those are blocked for the next round and actually the next two rounds because then you play a third color, you play blue. Um, and so it, <clears throat> it, it does get pretty tight pretty quick. Uh, and that way you can't repeat actions to... Um, you know, utilize the same action that may be beneficial every time. You have to work your way around it, and timing is everything, especially keeping track of all of the uh, different configurations of those main actions that are a part of the sliding worker placement um, portion of the worker placement board. And so, and then, you know, in the third round, you finally get your red workers back and you can use them again. And so, so it's a really simple, really straightforward, yet very challenging and puzzling way to do worker placement in a solo setting. Uh, so on top of that, and that's basically the, the major change, as well as not being able to swipe all the terrain cards and keeping them at a minimum um, for the amount that you see. But also, there are some challenges that you have, right? Um, normally, without any of these challenges, a good score is 120. Um, I will say that I have not hit that. I've, I've hit about 60 to 70 points every time I've played. And then the solo challenges, usually the score that you're trying to hit is 100 points. However, there are some interesting side um, objectives that you're trying to meet with the solo challenges. Challenges, For example, the first one is called Colonies, where you're trying to get 40 bats in addition to 100 points to unlock or, you know, to finish off that challenge, unlock that, that achievement. Um, that was really difficult. It really forced me to approach the game in a different way. Whereas I thought I had no, you know, I knew kind of, or I was at least starting to understand a general flow of the game, uh, which is one issue that I have with Agricola solo is that since there is no competition for worker placement spots, the game, the way that you play the solo game is very similar, especially because you can um, place the round action, you know, you, you, it's already dictated for you, you know what actions are coming up when. So in Ediwa, not, you have the you know worker placement spots that are changing, the, the little amount of terrain cards, and then the side objective that you're trying to achieve 
makes you attack makes you tackle the game in a very different way uh where there would be uh, you know no sort of um forced agenda or objective on your own end uh which may be you know somewhat uh applied to the multiplayer game if some people are you know if you're a little bit later in the player uh, turn count and some players are taking some spots which would probably lead to a certain portion of strategy you're forced to zag where they zig and try something new and you know so that inherently could make the multiplayer game feel different every time um i i still need to do that and have my own experience and and thoughts on that as well hopefully by the time i play this game 10 times that could be the case however with the solo challenges um uve uh dictates and and prescribes the the variability uh for that and you know even if you you know, potentially solve it. And maybe you're smarter than me and you see, uh, through, you know, these challenges and know exactly which pathway to take. You can, uh, it's still, there are plenty of challenges, like 10 challenges that you can go through to make it, um, you know, have a lot of replayability to try to unlock those. You know, if, if you are a solo gamer, of course, to, to, offer a contrast as well. My, my general feelings of Hollertau is that it is, it was, you know, it's a very fun game to play solo. However, it does feel like, um, at the amount of plays that I've had of it so far, it does feel solved uh, at the solo. It's still a fun puzzle to solve every time, and it feels a little bit different each time to to you know move your community board. But um, it does feel pretty repetitive at this point, and I think the mo- the game will feel a lot different and a lot more replayable in the multiplayer setting. It might be different. It might be the opposite with Edua, where the multiplayer game may feel pretty much the same, but these challenges that you're trying to achieve in the solo game make it very replayable. And so that may be biased towards solo, you know, players, basically. But you know, who who's to say at this point? I think um, <clears throat> I I definitely need to play the game a lot more to form a more solid opinion on that in that matter. But I am excited, and I think that's the the conclusion of my thoughts for for Edigua is that I am still excited to play this game. Uh, I rated an eight out of ten already because of the thematic integration with theme mixed with mechanism. It feels it feels really cool to see how uh, these real life events and what you might find in you know in real life with the bats flying down and taking the fruit and and leading to the creation of trees, you know. Uh, leads to this uh, free action that you take in a game, right? Um, seeing what kind of, you know, where where the points are in this game and how to get there, just it, it feels thematic, right? <clears throat> and which may not translate perhaps to a more, you know, mechanically sound and replayable game to some people, but my set, my also concluding spot is that, or, or thought, is that this game is really good solo. And it's, it's, it provides a really good puzzle to solve. So it's really fast too. Uh, the game, even at multiplayer, probably won't take too long. Maybe an hour, hour 15 or so if you, if everyone knows how to play. Uh, and the solo mode, I was able to, you know, bust out a game with in 30 minutes basically. And I could take a little bit more time to probably think about my turns. But I, I, I mean, I really enjoyed um, just the way that the, the worker placement um, just having three workers every round too, it, it just 
really narrowed down the decisions that I had to make. It didn't make it feel overwhelming. It's like, I, I have three turns to take this round. I could do this, this, or that. Or if I do this, and then this and that, maybe this, you know, I can get this. Is this the correct way to go? It still had those really good decisions where even though the worker placement board does feel, it, you know, at first glance doesn't think, you know, it, it, it doesn't exude like a lot of uh, variance or nuance, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It still was enough to make it challenging and exciting to try to think of what the right path would be to take. And so I'm still exploring and still discovering the um, the nuances of this worker placement game. And so it's still fresh for me, and that's why it's an 8 out of 10. I still, I, I feel like, you know, usually for me, an 8 out of 10 is a game that I still really enjoy to play and want to explore further after 10 plays or so. And so I, I am predicting that that will be the case. If it doesn't, if it, you know, it doesn't meet my requirements by then, then it's probably a 7 out of 10, which is still a pretty good um, score, I think. And so, but yeah, a lot of that score is buoyed by the thematic integration of this game. Uh, into a solid, you know, well-working worker placement game uh, with just enough variability in the terrain cards to keep it interesting, especially at the solo mode. And um, with the solo challenges, that bumps it up for me to make an 8 out of 10. Really worth my time and, and money. And I'm so looking forward to playing this. And I'm I'm very, you know, pleased. Uh, some of my concerns may still linger, but I think those have dampened a little bit with these plays and I'm I'm just really excited to continue to play this game. I'm looking forward to as I mentioned in the previous podcast uh what this this year and and the future might hold for an Edewa trilogy sort of games uh to see if anything different is iterated on if if it's still going to be a worker placement and there's a little bit more uh variety in in one way or we're going to use cards in a different game uh, are we going to have a new mechanism entirely as well? And so I'm really looking forward to that and what this setting has to offer. I know Uwe is uh, very uh, passionate about this subject as he is writing a book and as is mentioned in the um, <clears throat> in a packet that you get in the book is in the game as well. Uh, I will mention briefly for components, of course, the um, pretty much everything comes in a, like an eco-friendly type of bag. Uh, in in my copy, I, I didn't really get, I, I feel, enough bags to, or, you know, places to kind of traditionally, you know, hold all of your chits in. Um, maybe that's because of the, you know, eco-friendliness of this game and to reduce plastic. But <laughs> I, I do have to think about a way to kind of store those and maybe build an insert or something like that. And so, so it point is, it, it doesn't come with a lot of baggies like a lot of these traditional Euro games uh, offer. So if you don't have the physical version, just keep that in mind. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it, it definitely met my, my hopes and, um, I'm, I'm still excited to play this game. So that's my first impressions and, and my review of Eddie Wood thus far and hope to revisit it in a podcast later on after I've gotten a few more plays under my belt. So, uh, thank you for listening and I, I'm going to keep it there. Keep it short. Uh, well, we're still about half an hour in, so <laughs> about an average length for an episode, just to, to keep you abreast of what might happen in the future as well. Um, I, I want to work with Jacob to talk about some other games uh, outside of the Uwe Rosenberg sphere, uh, approaching, you know, board game lists with different topics and, and different ways to rank them. Um, <clears throat> for Rosenberg games too, uh, look forward to Applejack review and Applejack review. 
Um, I was able to acquire the Hollertau promo deck, and um, I wanted to play Hollertau a few more times to get a formal, you know, after 10 plays review of that uh, available and to include the promo deck. And yeah, and then I'll probably approach Oranian Burger Canal's uh, 10 plays as well. And so a lot of the, you know, recent um, releases of Uwe Rosenberg, and I'm hoping to acquire and play and formally review on the podcast here in the next few months for you. So uh, thank you for sticking around um, and hope you continue to have a great uh, February um, as we continue to march through this year into March. (laughs) Uh, Hope that everything goes well for you. Uh, Thank you for listening again and hope to catch you on the next episode. So this is a bonus recording. Uh, After I've recorded the main portion of the episode, I always forget to do this, but I like to comment on my blog post on the polls that I put out uh, every, you know, every Rosen blog, basically. And so in January last month, I put out a poll regarding the future of Uwe Rosenberg Games, uh, my predictions and thoughts of what we mostly know and what we could predict based off of some comments that Rosenberg has made on what games may be coming out this year or in the future. And so if you want the full experience for that, uh, you can go ahead and listen to that podcast. But uh, as the viewers uh, or the listeners uh, made mention on this post, so I had 133 votes total for different uh, games that I talked about in that episode. The the games that the the game that most people were excited about was the news for big box and expansions coming out and confirmed for later this year. Uh, there was an official uh, board game geek uh, slot for this game already made, you know, in the past couple of weeks, and so that is pretty much a guarantee uh, at this point. I think <laughs> the second one, uh, highest voted one, was a feast for Odin. Uh, and its expansion called the Danes expansion, and then Oranian Burger Canal, which is on its way over and also, you know, delivering to backers as as we speak, Uh, not here in the United States, but in Europe, that game is getting into the hands of people and people are talking about it online. So there are a lot of good comments here. Um, Some people, um, you know, reflected on the other portion of the episode, I talked about patchwork as well, and, and my strategy thoughts after uh, nearly 100 plays of that game. But, you know, most people were, you know, talking about why they were, you know, super excited for the Danes, you know, Feast for Odin's their favorite game, and therefore they're really looking forward to this, or very, you know, looking forward to Renneberg Canal. Um, no thoughts on Etowah. You know, not a lot of people were super excited for that. Only 7% of people voted for that. And so as far as like uh, further games in the Etowah trilogy, and so I, I really hope, and I think this kind of, you know, to reflect on what I just spoke about in this episode, you know, I, I hope that Edua does not become an overlooked and underrated game. I think there's a lot of, not only a good message behind it, but also good mechanisms and good thematic integration and everything. And so I, I hope more and more people appreciate that um, as time moves forward and perhaps with further implementations in this setting that might be the case. But yeah, I really enjoyed the comments that everyone left. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to what this year has to offer. And go ahead and listen to that episode if you haven't. And uh, really appreciate the listen and and all the feedback. I'll put a post uh, for this episode or poll for this episode up on the Board Game Geek blog post that I run. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks.